Welcome to Building Boston and Beyond, an educational podcast providing residents with information on the economic growth of their community and the many resources and services available to improve their quality of life. From discussions with public officials, businesses, organizations, and people wanting to affect change, Building Boston and Beyond aims to further educate and empower residents to have a voice, connect with their community, and join the decision-making process. Today's guest is Massachusetts State Senator Eric Lesser, representing nine communities in Western Mass since 2014. Senator Lesser's introduction into politics began at age 16, advocating for more educational funding in his region. Intrigued with the political process and becoming an agent of change, he continued on that path and soon found himself volunteering on the Obama presidential campaign. Upon victory, he joined the Obama's White House team as Director of Strategic Planning for the Council of Economic Advisors. Maintaining a connection to his Western Mass roots, Senator Lesser returned home, ran for political office, and for the past seven years continues his advocacy for greater economic opportunity for Western Mass and enhancing the quality of life for residents. Welcome, Senator Lesser, and thank you for joining Building Boston and Beyond. Let's share your background with our listeners. When and why the political track? Well, thanks so much, uh, Lydia, for having me, and it's great to uh, see you, talk to you. Glad that we're in a a better phase of things and people are starting to be together again. My kind of story in politics really starts when I was in high school. Uh, I was a 16-year-old in Longmeadow, which is a town in Western Massachusetts, and I remember there was a round of budget cuts that actually started with uh, local aid cuts that happened at the State House. I was called to an assembly by our principal and the principal lined up a whole group of teachers at the front of the room and said that many of them were not going to be coming back next year, that they were going to be getting laid off because of cuts to the school budget. It included the music programs, the arts programs, the athletics, the science programs, math programs. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there feeling very angry and feeling helpless that 15 and 16 and 17 year olds are being asked to pay the price for bad decisions, frankly, that have been made somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we got out and we organized. I didn't take no for an answer. We went out and knocked on every single door in town, trying to get done something that's called a proposition two and a half override, which was to increase funding for the schools. And the first vote actually failed. And something very important happened from that experience. Uh, which is the pink slips went out to the teachers and things got very real when people saw what was going to happen in the community. And I sensed at that point that people's thoughts on the cuts changed. Mm -hmm. So we put a new measure back up on the ballot. It wasn't everything we wanted. It was about two thirds of what we wanted. And uh, the second vote after we knocked on the doors again passed. Uh, And I remember being 16 years old at the town hall the night that the votes were being counted. And when the victory was declared, uh, one of the teachers literally ripping up his pink slip and throwing it in the garbage because his job was saved. And so it was an early lesson for me that despite the messiness and the frustrations of politics, 
you know, it still does remain one of the most powerful ways to make a difference. So that was my kind of first foray. I caught the bug after that. And then after that, before you became a senator, went into politics here in Massachusetts, you did work for the White House. What was that like? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of caught the bug from there and uh, went to Cambridge, uh, went to Harvard for my undergrad degree. And while I was there, I got very active in the campaign for Deval Patrick back in 2006. He was running for governor. And I remember one day I got an email from someone on the Deval Patrick campaign saying, hey, you know, there's going to be this guy uh, named Barack Obama who's going to be speaking at an event in Boston for Deval. Uh, why don't you invite some of the students you've been working with to come watch him speak? So I took the tea over. Uh, to Roxbury Community College where he was speaking and just was mesmerized and decided at that point that I, you know, I wanted to do anything I could to, to help him, of course, to help Duvall. Fast forward to early 2007, and I just started driving up to New Hampshire to help the very young Barack Obama for president campaign in the first primary state in New Hampshire. And at the time when we would go up there, you know, there was not even an office in the beginning. You would you would kind of meet up with people who were who were similarly excited. You'd kind of hold signs. You'd sort of say, "Okay, you write letters to the editor. I'll I'll staple these signs together. You go do these door knocks." And then at the end of the day, everyone would get together and have beers at a, a bar called Strange Brew in Manchester. I remember it was a popular <laughs> a popular spot. As the campaign started to build, I was in charge of kind of helping move then Senator Obama around New Hampshire when he would be in town to visit. So I remember we would use Avis rent-a-vans and we would drive him around from stop to stop around the state and then drop him back off at the airport so that he could take a Southwest flight back to Chicago or back to Washington. He had to take his shoes off in security, just like everybody else, take his belt off. Uh, this was before, you know, heavy secret service protection. Right. One thing led to another, of course, and after the New Hampshire primary, the campaign grows dramatically in scale. Mm. So I was asked to join him. The title they gave me was ground logistics coordinator, but essentially what that meant was I was like the equipment it would be like the being the equipment manager for the Red Sox I I was or like the mom on a big family vacation I was in charge of keeping track of everybody's Blackberry chargers and keeping track of everybody's suitcases mm -hmm. we traveled about 30 reporters and then about seven or eight staff members and Obama himself he had a big campaign plan with his name painted on the side we went to 47 states uh, traveled almost a quarter million miles during that campaign. And then when the campaign was over uh, in 2008, the fall of 2008, I was asked to join him as the assistant to David Axelrod, who was the president's chief political advisor. Wow. I've gotten to know David because he spent a lot of those hours with us on the plane. He asked me to join him as his assistant in the White House. I was one of the first Obama staff members to walk into the White House on Inauguration Day in 2009. That's amazing. That's so exciting. You know, I, I have to say that that's like a, that's a, that's a good lesson to share with listeners and young people that that's how you start. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the lesson I always take from that is whatever job you're doing, do it well. Yeah. They needed the luggage delivered and they needed the odds and ends tied together on their trips. I had a reputation. I, <laughs> I joked that I had never once lost a bag. So 
But it's true because I treated it seriously. And I have to give credit to Obama himself, who treated every member of his team, you know, with equal respect. He treated the 22-year-old campaign aide the same that he treated his chief advisor, David Axelrod. So he created a spirit of camaraderie and respect for people. So did the campaign manager, David Plouffe. And in a very real way, I took a lot of pride in the work. We were trying to make the argument that Barack Obama should be the leader of the free world. And if I couldn't get the toothbrushes to the hotels on time, it kind of broke down the argument that he should be entrusted with the nuclear codes. So, um, so and the little things count. So that's the other kind of lesson I try to teach people who are getting into politics or show people, which is first, do whatever job you're responsible for as give it 1000% of what you've got and and sweat the details because the small things do matter. If I did my job well, nobody noticed. Their bag appeared at their hotel, their Blackberry was fully charged, their toothbrush was where it needed to be or whatever. And if I didn't do my job well, it was a pretty big mess up and everybody was pretty unhappy. So that's as much motivation as I needed to stay focused. Absolutely. I'm sure. Let's talk about, you know, today you are a senator in Western Massachusetts and your vision for greater economic opportunity for Western Mass, enhancing the quality of life for residents. Let's talk more about that. I know that you have a passion for the passenger rail along with your vision, your overall vision, education, job training, innovation. But back to passenger rail, that's been a focus of yours from day one. So if you kind of zoom out for a second and you look at Massachusetts as a whole, uh, we're very blessed as a state because we have so many incredible assets. You know, we have incredible institutions. We have this booming, fast-growing economy, especially around life sciences, education, healthcare. But when you kind of peel the layers back, what you notice is you really have two states. You have fast-growing, high-tech, life sciences oriented economy, largely centered around Kendall Square. And then you have quite a lot of the rest of the state and many other communities around the state that have not shared in that growth or in that incredible opportunity. And I would point out that it's along a lot of dimensions. Uh, Certainly racially, it's very unbalanced in terms of who's benefited and who hasn't from the new economy. Mm -hmm. It's very segregated also along gender lines. The tech and life sciences economy is is heavily and disproportionately male. Certainly around educational lines, the benefits have largely come to the highest educated people, but also very importantly around geographic lines. You know, your zip code, unfortunately, in Massachusetts, in many respects, determines your access to this economy, your access to that opportunity. And so what you've really seen is two states develop. You've seen a a very high tech, very fast growing economy in the Kendall Square 128 area, which is really more similar to San Francisco or New York City than it is to Western Mass, which frankly has an economy more like Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania than it does like San Francisco or or New York's or Manhattan. And so one of the things that I, I feel very passionately about is we've got to solve that because it's frankly created problems for both communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Eastern Mass, you've seen exploding housing prices right. and awful traffic. I mean, I don't know how anybody affords to live in these places. I mean, it's so expensive and I don't know how they move around. The traffic is terrible. In Western Mass and in other areas, the Merrimack Valley, the South Coast, 
you've got the inverse challenge, which is you've got a lot of high quality of life. You've got a fairly low cost of living, but you don't have access to those jobs. East West Rail solves both issues. It connects Eastern Mass to that high quality of life, that low cost of living in Western Mass. It connects Western Mass to that red hot, fast growing job market. It will help everyone. And it reduces greenhouse gas emissions and improves air quality in the process. You're not on this charge alone. You have right. significant support. So so clearly that's very helpful. It's built over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I campaigned on this issue back in 2014 when I was 28, you know, and just coming out of Washington and coming back to the community where I had grown up in and making this case. And at first people thought it was a little bit fantastical, you know, it was a little bit out there, you know, or a train connecting Springfield and Boston. But I think what we've really learned and what I've learned and I've grown in my advocacy is at first we had presented this as a project for Western Mass. You know, we would say Springfield needs this. Mm -hmm. And that was convincing, obviously, to people who lived in Western Mass. It was less convincing to people who lived in Metro Boston, because people in the Boston area said, well, we've got our own problems to worry about. But as we've built a lot more support in recent years, because we've presented it less as a project for one region or another, and more as a project that would help everyone in the state in different mm -hmm. ways. As I pointed out, it would help Eastern Mass with its housing crisis. It would help Eastern Mass with its traffic crisis. It would help the whole state fight the environmental crisis. It would help Western Mass with our economy. It would help keep our young people in Western Mass. So there's something for everyone to grow from and benefit from. And when we presented right. it that way, uh, we saw the support change. So now we have the Boston City Council on board and the Springfield City Council on board. We have the Boston Chamber of Great. Commerce on board and the Springfield Chamber of mm -hmm. Commerce on board. We have both U.S. senators. We have members of Congress from the eastern part of the state supporting the project and members of Congress from the western part of the state supporting the project. And it's at this point become something that is a really central feature of any real planning, any real serious plan for our state's future. I think has to include a discussion of this rail link. No, I agree. Even from my perspective and some of the work I do in Springfield, the cultural activities and having access to the museums and the Basketball Hall of Fame and just a lot of other things that Springfield has to offer that unfortunately other cities around the state don't realize and understand. It's a great city. It's like the second largest city in the state, correct? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the third largest city and we have uh, immense assets here. We have the Basketball Hall of Fame, we have the Springfield Museums, we have the largest symphony orchestra in New England outside of Boston. We have five colleges and then you of course have five other colleges just to the north of us in Northampton and Amherst. You've got the Big E, the largest agricultural fair mm -hmm. uh, in the Northeast. You have a state medical center, tier one research hospital. So there's a lot going on here. There uh, is mutual fortune 100 company based in Springfield. But we often joke that, you know, a lot of my friends in Boston, you know, they don't realize that Massachusetts extends beyond, you know, I-495 or beyond Worcester, but there's a whole world of possibilities in the golden West as we describe it. No, there is a whole world. And I'm happy we're talking about that because it's unfortunate fortunate that people don't realize that. And it's about connectivity. And I think that's such a great idea. I understand that you sit on various legislative committees, like economic development and technologies, ethics, transportation, healthcare, emergency preparedness. I think it's good to share with our listeners what you can do for them and having access to you 
for issues they may have related to the committees you sit on and how you can help the community and the quality of life of your constituency. Yeah, of course. So, you know, to sort of zoom out, the legislature uh, obviously has all kinds of topics in front of it on any given day. Part of what I love about the job is you have to be a generalist. You know, on one day you're talking transportation, later that day you're talking about civil rights, later that day you're talking about environmental policy, later that day you're talking about education. So the job is really multifaceted. And one of the ways we help organize the legislature is through the committee process. So every year, there's about 6,000 bills that are filed. You know, they cover everything from changing the state flower to reorganizing the state's transportation system, right? So they run the gamut from, you know, relatively minor bills to very, very complex and, and high stakes bills. And then they're sort of categorized by subject matter and assigned to a committee that does the deep research into those issues and that helps craft. Uh, consensus around those issues before it moves to the full legislature to consider. So I chair our economic development committee. So issues dealing with job creation, issues dealing with job training, issues dealing with municipal infrastructure, for example, the MassWorks program, mm -hmm. many of our housing programs uh, that include, you know, things like transit-oriented development and smart growth, and also emerging tech. So issues around the gig economy, issues around privacy and data, cybersecurity and internet regulation right. uh, also come through my committee. And I also serve as vice chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, and that's a very, very big committee that deals with public safety criminal justice, civil rights legislation. So it's a lot. Yeah, you you do a lot. <laughs> There's obviously a lot of topics to cover, uh, but we uh, do our best to try to be a resource for our constituents and try to give voice to our communities. I've got nine communities in Western Mass that are uh, really diverse in every way, rural, urban, diverse along socioeconomic lines, demographic lines. They have different types of economies ranging from predominantly agricultural economies um, really high tech sectors and professional services. So it really runs the gamut. But I would just say that, you know, one thing that unites all the issues I work on, one thing that unites all the different communities I represent is a growing feeling that their kids and their grandkids might not be getting the same opportunities that they and their parents got. And I think that's very important. I think we are at a moment, frankly, in American history, in Massachusetts history, where we need to um, make some big decisions about investments we need to make, whether it's transportation, you look at what's happening in China and other countries, the, the, the leaps that they're making in terms of research, in terms of educational output, we're falling behind and Massachusetts is falling behind. Right. We've really got to marshal that energy for some big changes. One other thing that I read, the Manufacturing Caucus, yep. you oversee that? That's yeah. about protection, it's about jobs and protection of workers? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's about that and much more. You know, Springfield and the whole Pioneer Valley, the North-South Valley along the Connecticut River in both Connecticut and in Massachusetts had been historically a manufacturing center. The monkey wrench was invented in Springfield. That's so cool. We were a center for precision machining. The Springfield Armory, George Washington put the arsenal for the United States military at the country's founding, before the country's founding, in Springfield because of our history of manufacturing. And ever 
course, since then, you've seen iconic companies, Indian Motorcycles, Duryea mm -hmm. Motors, the first internal combustion engine mass produced in America was produced in Springfield. Rolls-Royce, their American manufacturing was done in Springfield. Up and down the Connecticut Valley, you saw this history and it created wealth. It created opportunity for generations of immigrants and families in Western Mass. We know what happened to manufacturing in our country in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. Those jobs started to leave. Mm -hmm. And while they left in the Boston area, they were often replaced by new positions in life sciences and tech and healthcare. Right. In Western Mass, you didn't see the same replacement. So the region fell on hard times, but we're in the middle of a renaissance now. And mm -hmm. there's actually now a lot of inshoring happening uh, and new investment happening, new manufacturing opening up. And it's producing opportunity for a new generation of workers. So what we do in the manufacturing caucus is we get all the legislators from regions around the state that have manufacturing as an important part of their economy. We get all of us together mm -hmm. and we coordinate our asks. So when you have 30, 40, 50 legislators advocating for something that tends to be more successful than one or two. So we tend to focus on things that are that sector needs, job training, community college support, promotion of manufacturing in schools, promotion of voc schools and uh, career and technical education programs, mid-career programs for someone who might be in their 40s or 50s, mm -hmm. who maybe is working at a Dunkin' Donuts at 14 or $15 an hour, you can get them into a 10-week training program. They come out, now they're making $25, $30 an hour. That's amazing. Uh, in precision machining, many going to work at CRC to make those rail cars. So it's really about both rekindling part of our heritage in Massachusetts as a manufacturing center mm -hmm. and acknowledging that this sector has always been a way to get people into the middle class. A 10-week, 12-week training program can get you making a wage at $50,000, $70,000 a year. That salary in Western Mass allows you to buy a home, to start saving for retirement. Really? And to then, very importantly, the sector also provides growth from there. So people can enter apprenticeships. They can open their own shops. That's what our Manufacturing Caucus really is all about. No, that's great. Uh, really, again, quality of life improvements. Yep, you know, exactly. in the partnerships with the educational institutions and vocational training, you can't minimize vocational training. This is just a training that will take you through your life. And as you said, a manufacturing career can enhance your quality of life, get you that house and overall have a challenging and fulfilling career. Exactly, exactly. You know what I want to talk about is I was reading your Thrive After 55. <laughs> That's yes. so cool. Tell us about it. Yeah, so we just wrapped up uh, on Friday, this past Friday, we wrapped up our Thrive After 55 Fair for this year. Uh, really, the idea of this is very simple. It's to connect our senior citizens in our community with all of the different resources and advocates that there are on their behalf. You know, your senior years are an exciting time of life. You, you have great people are enjoying grandkids, new hobbies. They're getting able to start to retire. But it's also a time with a lot of anxiety. People have, certainly during COVID, people were concerned for their health. There's concern about finances. Will people be able to afford to retire? People be able to age in place? Will they be able to stay in their homes? 
Uh, will how will people get around? The idea of this fair is really lighthearted. It's fun. It's about things we do like a yoga demonstration for people. We have a nutritionist give kind of feedback on healthy eating, but it has a serious undertone to it, which is about letting the community know that we are there as their advocates and that we're there to fight for lower prescription drug costs. We're there to fight for better transit access. We're there to fight for better housing policies that allow seniors to live with dignity into their older years. Right. We're about fixing our healthcare system that traps too many seniors in endless sort of bills and medical appointments and high costs. So there's both a lighthearted kind of fun element, you know, uh, helping people live their best lives, but there's also a pretty serious public policy goal there too, which oh, of is course. advocating for the issues, you know, that are important to us. Because we're all living longer. And we have to prepare for the future. Exactly. I mean, you just take something like nursing home care, you know, just, just the nurse, our nursing homes are in crisis. You know, they can't afford to stay open. The costs are going up and up. We saw during COVID mm -hmm. the strain on that workforce, what it did to facilities, just that topic alone is one that's going to require, you know, a lot of focus. And this is before large numbers of baby boomers, you know, enter their seventies, eighties, even nineties. Uh, this is going to be an issue that's going to just grow in importance over the coming years. Before we go, I want to talk about something, um, something fun. Again, this is a great <laughs> update of Western Massachusetts, but I can't help it. This is more personal too. I want to hear more about when you were at the seven seasons uh, as a script consultant for the HBO comedy Veep. Yes. Yeah. Just a little info. <laughs> Just tell us a little about that, you know? Yeah. So Veep, of course, was it was an HBO series uh, about a vice president. It's interesting. Armando Iannucci, who was the original creator of the series, and he did two series in, in England that became very popular in America. One was In the Loop and the other was The Thick of It, which were really kind of spoofs on 10 Downing Street, especially in the run up to the war in Iraq. So HBO basically went to Armando and they said, hey, you know, we want you to come and do a show uh, in America, uh, you know, a political comedy. And he surveyed, you know, all of American politics. And he decided that of all of American politics was the vice presidency. <laughs> uh, because it's a job that's very high profile, um, seemingly very powerful, or certainly has the trappings of power, but constitutionally has very little authority. So it was sort of ripe for comedy. And it was just an incredibly talented team. Uh, the writers were just, just so smart. And the really talented cast, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, Tony Hale, from Arrested Development, some breakout stars too. Wow. My job was, was fairly modest in all of it. I was asked to really just help the writers with accuracy and with the sort of feel of the show. And um, I took great pride in the fact that a lot of my former colleagues would call me and they'd say, wow, like that show hit a little too close to home, <laughs> a little, a little too accurate at some point. So a great experience, uh, yeah. ran seven, seven seasons. Dave Mandel took over for the, the final four seasons, I believe just really nice wow. and really talented guy. He had been part of Saturday Night Live, who was a writer. He was the showrunner for Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. He was uh, great one of the showrunners for Seinfeld, uh, where he got to know of course, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, mm -hmm. uh, just immensely talented people. It was really a great honor to, to really just kind of be a part of it. Yeah, that's great. Well, clearly you know how to mix it up. You do. And you're and you an inspiration to people. A little bit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. You're, you're definitely inspiration to listeners and, and younger people. You, you got to mix up your life. Absolutely. And, you, and have a balance, but do different things and try different things and not think that you just have to focus on that one path you took when you were 28. 
Right. And what, you know, I, what I'd say on that, Lydia, you know, as Michelle Obama talks about it, I think very eloquently in her book, she talks about the swerves, you know, she had a life of a certain path that she had envisioned for herself. And there were moments in her life, she talks about it in her book, where there were swerves or pivots. Uh, and the and the sort of stress, both the stress and the opportunity of those swerves and pivots. And, you know, I, I had one myself, which was, you know, when I was in Washington, I was in my early 20s, uh, I worked 40 feet from the front door of the Oval Office, was there for the passage of the Affordable Care Act, was there for the response to the global financial crisis and the passage of the Recovery Act, was there for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, you know, saw some really heady and, and, and important things. Uh, but one of the things I kind of always felt and something frankly that Barack Obama had taught his staff was that you know, change doesn't come from Washington. Uh, and I feel strongly about that even in Massachusetts. Change doesn't come from the state house. Change comes to the state house. Mm -hmm. Change comes to Washington. I saw in front of me a life, high power kind of Washington world work and that uh you know that that has its positives you can have a great career on that but i was itching to get back to my local community you know to make change in the community where i had grown up and uh, and that was a, a pivot for me I, I chose uh to come home and to do that and i and i can say you know if people are listening to this what i would say is think about doing work in your home community, you know, and think about running for office. We have a tendency now, and maybe COVID is going to reverse this, of people kind of hyper concentrating, you know, in a handful of places, Boston, San Francisco, New York, Washington. But one of the things I really want to encourage people to do is work on the change, work on your vision where you grew up, mm -hmm. you know, work on trying to make change uh, where you've got the roots. Well, Senator Lesser, I'm happy you did come back because you're certainly an asset in Western Massachusetts. I really appreciate you taking the time because you clearly have a lot of a lot on your plate. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on Building Boston and Beyond. Thanks for having me. For information on Senator Lesser's political initiatives and his weekly podcast, Lunchtime with Lesser, go to senatorlesser.com. Visit buildingbostonandbeyond.com to get a glimpse of our future guests and the many ways you can follow us on social media. Join us next time to hear the latest topics of discussion in Boston and beyond.